Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Ephesians, where we will continue our sermon series. Uh, If you'd like to use one of the Bibles in your pew, that's on page 1161. We're going to begin in verse 7 and go to verse 16. And this, I must confess, is one of my favorite parts of the whole book. It's all good, but, but this is one of my favorites. And so the Apostle Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended, excuse me, who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes rather Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. Into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. I don't know if you've ever considered this before, but there are two ways to do expository preaching, the kind of preaching that uh, we favor here uh, at Grace. And one way is to draw out the main point of a text and then to uh, preach the point, basically. Preach the point using the different aspects of the text to prove the point. The other is a sort of walking commentary on the text. You kind of just walk verse to verse following the train of thought if if indeed there's an obvious sort of connected train of thought to follow. I tend to favor the first one. But this text is so, I don't know how to put it, progression loaded. Like you're you're meant to kind of jump from one stone to another. uh, That that's how we're going to do things today. And so our text this morning, it'll be no surprise to you, our text this morning is about Jesus. As every text is, uh, this one, more obviously and explicitly and unmissably so, is about Jesus and what He is doing from His heavenly throne and what He has been doing from His throne since the day of His ascension. Jesus, first, is giving gifts to us. Jesus is growing us and Jesus is holding us together. Those are at least three things I want you to observe this morning that you'll see as we go verse by verse through our passage this morning. Paul starts by saying that Jesus is in heaven The ascended Christ is in heaven giving gifts. Why do you suppose he needs to say that? Well, to understand what Paul is talking about, you need to recall a bit of last week's sermon, at the very least the text of the sermon, maybe even the point. Verses 1 through uh, 6 of chapter 4, Paul is concerned that the Ephesian Christians, you might remember, walk worthy of their calling and walk together. 
right? So walk worthy of their calling and walk in unity because they're under the lordship of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so on. And so he wants them to be, uh, last week I told you Paul wants them to be mature and he wants them to be united. He wants them to be mature and he wants them to be united. And this sermon is going to be more of the same. If you are a Christian, I mean honestly even if you're not, you can probably guess there are two areas where the church has historically struggled. To be unified and to be mature. If you take a minute and reflect on that, apart from any other goal you have in your life, I mean goals for yourself, goals for your family, for your household, for your kids, think about setting that work before you. To be a Christian and with other Christians in unity, in strong unity, and mature. And you get the sense that's a weighty task. Because there's all sorts of reasons for us to be disunited and, 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 uh, and, and irritable and fighting with each other. And there's all sorts of reasons for us to remain in immaturity. So how shall we do it? That's what our text this morning is meant to help us answer. Paul's answer essentially is fear not. The resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus is on His throne in heaven handing out His gifts so that you will succeed in this. That's what he says. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us. Okay? And so Jesus is giving grace to each one of us according to the measure of His gift. And, uh, and then He does something interesting. Paul does. He quotes from Psalm 68. Look then in verse 8. Therefore it says, it meaning uh, uh, the Scriptures, the Old Testament, the Psalter. Therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives. He gave gifts, and He gave gifts to men. Let us once again remember that Paul loves to quote his Psalms. For the same reason you love to quote your favorite hymns. That's what he grew up singing. That's what's echoing in his head. His music uh, shapes his view of God, and so he uses it to explain things. So what's going on here? First, you have to know that in the ancient world, when a king would conquer an enemy city, the first thing that would happen would be a triumphant procession through the city proclaiming the reign of the new king and behind him were all his victorious soldiers and their captives the prisoners of war the new king would then give gifts to his new subjects like food resources maybe gold court positions to those who were most qualified and would swear allegiance a new king comes giving gifts. And so Paul uses this moment in Psalm 68. What's happening in Psalm 68 is that Yahweh is, as it were, ascending Mount Zion to take His rightful place with His Davidic King at His right hand. And Paul basically says this is exactly what Jesus Christ has done. He has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven and is now giving out gifts. More on that in a moment. You will notice the little side thought Paul has. I think the translators are right to put it in parentheses. Look at verses 9 and 10. In saying He ascended, what does it mean? But, also, but, but that He had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. 
excuse me, lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now that sounds a bit confusing. Here's what Paul is saying. In order to come up, to ascend to heaven, Jesus must have gone down. Right? Not too hard. That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. That's what we just celebrated. And this text refers to the incarnation at least. Verse 9 is a bit tricky though. You'll notice the ESV translates it as the lower regions. Uh, uh, sorry, let me find it here. Yeah, the lower regions, comma, the earth. New King James handles it as the lower regions of the earth. So the New King James is, is lower regions of the earth. ESV is lower regions, uh, if you want to put in, that is the earth. Okay? Consideration of the Greek, sort of the, the manuscript data we have on this, honestly, it makes either one possible. I think, I think the New King James is, in this particular instance, uh, a better way of translating it, but here's why it matters. If the ESV is correct, then this is a reference to the Incarnation. He came from heaven to earth. Right? If the New King James is correct, it could very well be a reference to what's called the harrowing of hell. That is, when Christ was in the grave, He goes to the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, they called it Sheol. In the New Testament, they called it Hades or Hades. Because Old Testament saints, when they died, did not go to heaven. I don't know if you've thought about that before. To be clear, they did not go to hell either. They went to Sheol or to Hades, the place of the dead. It was not a place of punishment. Uh, it was a place of quiet rest, you could say. The only two Old Testament saints that were told they went up when they died are Enoch and Elijah. All the others went to Sheol, where they remained. Not, not in suffering, not in torment, but still not all the way to heaven. This is why in the book of Revelation, the resurrected victorious Christ says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Right? I have the keys of death and Hades. Christ has the keys of death and Hades because after His death, He broke down the doors of Hades and led a host of captives out in triumph all the way up to heaven. So this is that line in the Apostles' Creed, He descended into the dead. Now, this is not the time for a full sermon about the harrowing of hell or the harrowing of Hades. In the future, I do hope to do a topical series on the Apostles' Creed, and at that time, we'll try to dedicate a whole sermon to it. But in short, I'm fine with saying that our verse here references both. Both incarnation and descent into the dead. Uh, Paul says in verse 10 then, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. So in other words, the one who came down, Jesus of Nazareth, is the same exalted Christ who went up. These two are the same man. The one in the tomb is the same guy who walked out of it. And He means to fill all things. To spread His rule over every corner of the world. That's why He descended into the lower parts to declare His Lordship there too. So Paul's argument is that Christ has descended. 
And he has triumphantly ascended up to his throne in heaven, taking captives with him. And what is he doing up there on his throne? Do you remember? Giving gifts. He's giving gifts. He's giving presents. He is the new king, right? Long live the king, and the king comes with him giving gifts. Or excuse me, king comes bearing gifts with him. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Those are the gifts he's giving. Commentators are all over the map on what this means. So I will render this for you as best I can figure. I'm perfectly happy for this to start a conversation that we'll keep having until we're dead. Some people see this as a list of four or five distinct gifts that Jesus is busy giving out in equal measure. I think that's not quite right. I think the point here is that Paul is talking about how Jesus has always blessed His people with a teaching office. Sometimes it's been apostles. Sometimes it's been prophets. So on and so forth. Okay? I think the first two here are foundational. Apostles and prophets. The New Testament office of apostle, I do believe, has come to an end. There are examples of prophetic works and prophetic words in the New Testament, but that office as it existed in the Old Testament has come to an end as well. I am not, that is, that is one who speaks for God with the authority to add to Scripture. Right? I'm not saying God can't put prophets on the earth today. I am saying that because of the total sufficiency of Scripture, our standard of proof for them should be very high indeed. If someone is claiming to directly speak with no intermediary for Almighty God, that is not a job description for people who have a faint sense of what they might want to say. If someone claims to be a prophet and makes a prophecy, it should come about exactly as they've said, and if it doesn't, they should be disciplined, forbidden from ever using such a sacred title again, And, if they still think themselves supremely clairvoyant, should take up a job on Wall Street. And tithe. That's a joke. (laughs) But however you understand this part of the passage, and I'm quite okay with with a variety of, uh, of perspectives on it, what I really want you to see is that Paul depicts Jesus, Jesus, as basically dealing out teachers, like dealing out cards for His people. Okay, dealing out apostles, dealing out prophets, dealing out shepherds, teachers, uh, evangelists. Almost forgot them. Yep. And so, Paul depicts Jesus as giving the gift of the office of teaching, and that office has a few subcategories. The point is that Jesus is giving teachers of His words. That's what I want you to get. Jesus Christ is in heaven today building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, as Peter would say, with evangelists and, oh, this is, this is the fun part, the shepherds and the teachers. Honestly, if you've got your Bible open and you follow that ESV footnote down, you'll see that the ESV acknowledges it, it could also be the shepherd teachers or the shepherds who teach. Okay? Uh, I think think that is the better translation, actually. The shepherds who teach. In other words, we have a word for that. Pastors and elders. I love to preach this text at an ordination ceremony. I got to do it once. To tell a congregation 
Uh, it's just our presbytery asked me to cover an ordination service that was happening in North Louisiana. They needed somebody to preach that ordination service. And so this was my text. And I got to tell a congregation, like, the ascended King Jesus has sent you a pastor because that's what he's been doing since he rose again. He's been sending out evangelists and pastors to his church because he's good. An evangelist is someone appointed for the task of seeing the work started, right? A shepherd teacher, a pastor, is one who's tasked with seeing the work continued. Though, of course, there's overlap in their calling and in their work. An evangelist, you might say an evangelist oversees birth. A pastor oversees growth. An evangelist is the lumberjack. A pastor is the contractor. And so what can we find? And so what we find here is a job description, a purpose for the teaching office, broadly speaking, with its subcategories in God's kingdom. So why is Jesus doing this? Why, why, is, why is He giving His church these gifts? Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Oh, well, I thought pastors were the only ones who did work of ministry. No. <laughs> to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. God sends evangelists, pastor teachers, so on, for, for a purpose. To equip the saints so that the body can be built up. Now again, most people think of the pastor's work as primarily being one of comfort or counsel. And to be sure, that is part of it. But according to Paul, the pastor's primary job is to equip, to outfit, to train, to coach, you might say. But notice that the equipping is for a very specific task. For the work of the ministry. That is, for the building up of the body. If you thought for one second that Jesus is dealing out evangelists and pastors and means for those guys to do all the work of the ministry, please think again. I mean, pastors do the work of the ministry. That's true. But that's just not the whole thought. Pastors are ministers who equip the body for the work of ministry. Their job is to equip the whole body to be built up. And, and for the sake of, of me not having to stumble over my own words, when I say pastors, I mean pastors and elders. Their job is to equip the whole body to be built up in the work of ministry. This is one of the things we talked about um, in the Wednesday night series on work that just wrapped up. That, that when people say, um, uh, oh, I, you know, after... Whatever. After I finish my education, I'm going to go. I'm going to go into full time Christian ministry. Okay. <laughs> Is there any other kind? <laughs> Is there part time Christian ministry where you're only a Christian for part of the time? No. To use a cliched phrase, we are all in this together, y'all. Well, for how long? Look at verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Jesus is dealing out evangelists and pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body with two goals in view. Are you ready for them? I, heard, I told you you were going to hear this again. Unity and maturity. Same as, same as last week's text. Unity and maturity. Both must go together. Now, this is important 
Because I think sometimes the way we talk about unity and the way we talk about maturity reveals that we are tempted to think we can have one or the other. Here's what I mean. How do you attain to maturity in Christ? If you're that, you know, let's put that question on the table. How does a Christian grow in maturity in Christ and attain to maturity in Christ? For a lot of people, the answer is to cloister themselves away from fellowship, say away from the church, away from evangelists, pastors, teachers, and to just soak up 47 gallons worth of theological data until they feel they've been given special access to the secrets of the universe that mere mortals like us could never fathom. Okay? But is that maturity? Well, how about unity? Sometimes we think unity happens when we stop caring so much about, say, doctrine and theology and practices until we figure out like the lowest possible level of necessary conviction. And we make that our operating system. So we, we boil our doctrine and our work down to the absolute shortest list of things we can believe with confidence without stepping on any toes, and that's how you get unity. You draw your standard according to the most <laughs> like oversensitive person or people. So you have unity, but... There's a, there's a strong possibility you have unity while you're being led around by immaturity. Paul says the two have to go together. You have to have unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God together to the highest point, to the fullness of Christ. And what do you get when you have unity and maturity together? You get a spiritual immune system. Look at verse 14. So that, why do we want this? So that we may no longer be children, immaturity, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried around by every wind of doctrine. That's why unity around the truth is important. By human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes. Paul's point here is really amazing when you get your hands around it. He is saying that when shepherds, pastors, elders are faithful in their work to equip the saints. And when those saints doing the work of the ministry grow together in unity and maturity, the result is an immune system. They're able to resist false teaching. False teaching thrives when Christians retreat into isolation Indulge their immaturity and refuse correction. But where there is unity and maturity, we will have an immune system against false teaching. You see how important our bonds of fellowship are. It's part of our whole stability as a people. It is a stability we have to fight for so we don't get tossed around. And by the way, there's no shortage of very clever, very cunning, very deceitful false teachers. Fake prophets, skillful showmen, and convincing charlatans. Jesus is equipping His church for the work of ministry so that as we grow together, we won't get tossed around by every latest thrilling doctrine being peddled by the latest, newest false teacher with shiny teeth and a smooth voice. Christ means for His body not to get tossed around by false doctrine. So He promises to build into it a stable structure. It's hard to knock down a very stable structure when all of the parts are connected and together. 
It's when all the, I mean, all the bits of a building, if you think of like molecules when they're, when they're separated out rather than tightly bound together, or even just construction, again, when it's, when it's apart rather than together. It's when it's together that it's strongest. And so the first point, if you can go to the next slide, please. Let's see, the first point, Jesus is giving gifts to us. Jesus is growing us together, and Jesus is holding us together. Look at verse 15. Rather, rather than getting tossed around, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So that, that rather is, is, is contrasted with the deceitful schemes. We are not speaking deceitfully, not doing this by human cunning. That's not our ammunition. Those are not our weapons. You know what our weapons are? Speaking the truth in love. Paul says rather remarkably that's, that's a big part of how we grow. So it's not just a kindness we extend to others. It's actually part of how we grow. How we talk to each other is a big part of how we grow together. We must always keep in mind that this is how we're to talk, to, to speak the truth in love. Now that, that is appropriate, brothers and sisters, for evangelism, but, but keep in mind, this is to a church, and it's talking about their unity and maturity. So there, it's, actually, it's, it's inter, inter, within the church, how you speak to each other. Now by speaking the truth in love, it, that doesn't mean always speaking with a soft tone. The prophets, the apostles, Christ Himself had some very sharp, even at times very offensive things to say, and yet it was always rooted in love. Always rooted in love. But look, there is a way to talk to people, maybe I should say talk at people, where you are simply a truth dispenser. <laughs> right? And they are simply a truth receptacle. Right? I am truth dispenser, you are truth receptacle, here is truth, nameless receptacle. Insert truth A, uh, truth tab A into person slot B. The end. There is a way of speaking the truth where you have no more love for the person hearing than if you were bubbling in a correct answer on an exam. And for that reason, truth without love, in some sense, ceases to actually be truth. Now, we can also err in the other direction. There can be love without truth. You know, comfort, comfort where there is no comfort. Right? Truth without love is, is harsh and unyielding. It ceases to be truth. Love without truth is very soft, very, very warm, very empathetic, very accommodating, but it ceases to be love. So this is, this is the task given to us. Speaking the truth in love. It's a weighty thing. It calls for wisdom. It calls for maturity. And it is part and parcel of our unity, right? It'll help our unity as we speak to each other this way. So this is the task given to us. Which we cannot do without unity and maturity. Indeed, we read, look at verse 16. From whom, it's Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, that might be a bit wordy at the first pass. Uh, in other words, Christ makes the whole body fit together while each part is doing 
what it's supposed to be doing. And when that happens, the body is growing. So doesn't that, doesn't that just sort of wreck a lot of paradigms that we have for what church growth means? Right? The church is growing when Jesus Christ is making it fit together in unity and maturity. That means the church is not growing if its numbers are increasing, but its unity and maturity is not. The church, that is, uh, the church is growing when Jesus Christ fits it together in unity and maturity, each part doing what it's supposed to be doing, each part exercising its gift uh, to do the work of the ministry, and that's what makes it grow. And growing, you know, how, do you, how do you observe growing? Growing is building itself up in love. Because the growth of the body has to come from the head, it is growth in unity and maturity. These two things always being together. It is not growth of a bunch of independent mercenaries who never talk to each other. Those who are joined to the head are joined to each other. That's the point. Growth occurs in the context of fellowship and love. And I submit to you that growth cannot happen apart from fellowship and love. I don't care how good your quiet times are. Right? And I'm a big fan of quiet times. Go quiet times. They're great. They're great. Okay? But I don't care how sweet your quiet times are. Growth happens in the context of fellowship and love for which you need other people. So, what are we taking home today? What are we taking into work? What are we taking into our various vocations, into our life together? Jesus has put a high priority on unity and maturity. He is in heaven, on His throne, dealing out teachers so that the body can grow together to do the work of ministry. And as they grow in unity and maturity, they will be defended from the random blasts and tidal waves of false doctrine. They will be made steady and stable as they all grow together in truth and in love. What a great encouragement it is to know that Jesus cares about us all the way down to the bottom of life. And if you look again, I think it was verse 15. Yeah, yeah, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him. So growing in every area of life, right? Maturity that is spiritual, physical, emotional, mental, etc. Right? So growing up in every way. Jesus cares about all of the aspects of life all the way down to the bottom. He descended into the depths so that there would be no place in all creation untouched by His authority. No corner that is not His dominion. Indeed, all the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Amen. And so our Father, my prayer is simply this, that You would help us to attain to unity and to maturity. This is something that we need to do together by Your Word. Helped by the elders you've put here. Thank you for them, Lord. 
Thank you for the deacons that you've put here, day in, day out, doing the work of, uh, of the property, of the budgets, of the, uh, of the mercy ministry. Thank you for the formation of this mercy team to do the work that, of ministry. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you that you, the Lord Jesus, are giving out your gifts for the sake of equipping your people. So let us be rightly equipped by your word, through your Holy Spirit, by the promises of your Son. Encourage our hearts as we feed on those very promises here at his table. In Jesus' name, amen.